0: Welcome. It's good to be together. Um, and uh, if you're a guest here, a special welcome. Glad that you're here visiting. And let us know how we can help you in any way. Um, we're honored that you'd, you'd be here. We, we want to be a blessing to you as well. And um, my name is Paul Buckley. I'm one of the pastors here, the lead pastor. And, uh, it's my privilege on most Sundays to bring teaching from God's Word. And we gather as God's people. Uh, we gather... Not merely because we share interests. We gather because uh, we have been rescued by God. We belong to Him. We're part of His family. He's called us uh, with with all His people to to gather into local congregations, to walk together, to uh, follow Him, and to be on mission together. And the life for that comes from God Himself through His Word. His Word is, is an essential and central part of how He brings life, how He nurtures His people, how He forms us into the image of Christ, how He empowers us and instructs us in His mission. So being before His Word every Sunday uh, as we worship is really important. And we as a church are committed to to God's Word as the Bible, as the authority and the functional um, life for our church in every way, the functional authority, the functional life. Uh, And so we make our way through different books of the Bible as we go through the year. And we just finished a series in Revelation and uh, it was an intense series. We did it because it's a book of the Bible and it needs to be addressed at some point. Um, and uh, I think, in some ways, that the series in Revelation uh, could be compared to a really uh, vigorous workout. And so, in some ways, we've been through this series and we're, we feel, uh, I hope, invigorated, helped, but also, boy, I'm a little, that was intense. So, what we're doing now is actually taking uh, three weeks just to kind of rest and refresh a little bit. And so if the series of Revelation was an intense workout, we have a three-week series now that's kind of time in the jacuzzi. Uh, We're just going to kind of soak in the love and fatherhood of God. Um, And we can go to anywhere in Scripture to to see that, but probably one of the most profound passages related to the the love and the fatherhood of God is Luke chapter 15. So we're going to do a a series in Luke 15, soaking um, and learning. And we need the things that are in this chapter. We desperately need the truth that's here. It's a teaching we need to hear. And I think we all need it. Well, I know we all need it because we fail to understand God as He is. We fail to see God in His love. We fail to understand who the Father is. And uh, this passage of Scripture actually was given by Jesus Himself for that very reason because people were failing to understand who God is as the Father. there were two groups actually that were failing to understand who He was. And through Jesus' life and His teaching, they were beginning to be changed in that. And that's what this chapter is about. It's about adjusting false notions of God. And we need to think rightly about God. A.W. Tozer, the theologian and pastor in the 20th century said, uh, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It's the most important thing about us because it determines really who we are. What." we think about ourselves. What do we think certainly about God? What do we think about life? It, it all is centered around what we think about God. And so, wrong notions of God lead to wrong living. And So we all need to be adjusted by God's Word so we would understand what He's really like. And that's what Jesus is doing in this chapter. In chapter 15, He's addressing people. He's addressing uh, two different types of people. We'll get into that. And adjusting their notion. And as a result, the, the intention there of course is change Changing our lives freeing us from things that are that are wrong and evil and and bind us and and granting us new life in him and making us more and more like jesus that's the intention that's the intention really of all of god's word so let's ask god to do just that as we look at luke 15 this morning let's pray lord we thank you for your word we thank you for this fantastic passage this fantastic chapter in the bible And all that you have for us in it. Lord, there's way more in it than I I know and than certainly I can express. So we ask you, God, we ask you, God, the Holy Spirit, that you would come and be with us. You'd help me to proclaim the word clearly and faithfully, properly, emphatically, Lord. And we pray you'd help us to understand what you're saying and not only to intellectually understand, but have our lives transformed by you in this truth. So we ask for Your help. We thank You so much for who You are and Your intention to speak and bring change and bring life. So do just that and glorify Your worthy name we pray. Amen. I'll be reading the entire chapter of Luke 15. You can follow along. I encourage you to follow along in a Bible in your hands. Best place to have the Bible is right in your hands. If you don't have the Bible, that's okay. We don't want you to feel bad. You can follow it up on the screen as well. Uh, I'll be reading the whole chapter. So, it says in Luke 15, chapter Chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Him. Speaking of Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So, he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost? until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. He was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. God's Word from Luke. Chapter 15. Well, as you can probably tell, there's a lot in that chapter. So we're going to take some time. We're going to take three messages to go through this chapter. So over the next three Sundays, we'll be looking at different aspects. Uh, Today, uh, the message is entitled Lost Things. We'll be focusing on the younger brother. Next week, uh, we'll focus on the father. And then the final message, we'll focus on the older brother. Uh, They all together hit on the same thing. Uh, they hit on who God is, what the Father is like, and what that means to younger brothers, what that means to older brother types. It's really in that correcting. It's about correcting our notion of God. And I have to tell you, I, I've studied and known this passage for most of my Christian life. Uh, I've probably, I know I've preached messages on it before. As I prepared this week for this, I encountered new things that, that I needed to know that I didn't know that I needed to know. <laughs> And so I trust that for me and for all of us, God will do work through His Word in these messages, through this text, in correcting our notions about God. And so we're going to jump in here just to give a little background to help us understand this is right in the middle of the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke is a, uh, an account of the life and ministry of Jesus, His key uh, deeds, really showing who He is, what He's like. Uh, it's Meant so that we would put our faith in Him. We would see who He is and put our faith in Him. That's what the Gospels are about. And this Gospel, the Gospel of Luke, uh, alongside the other Gospels, paints a picture of Jesus, but it has certain emphases that, that are not lacking in the other Gospels, but maybe not as strong. Uh, and one of those emphases in the Gospel of Luke is about Jesus coming to seek and to save the lost. Adjusting, really, how we understand God and seeing that He is a God that, that pursues... The unlikely. He's a God who pursues the, those that are maybe irreligious or on, in the, on the outcasts of society and so forth. Um, he is a God that pursues such people to seek and to save them. And that's really a central message of Luke, that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And so if you read through the Gospel of Luke, there will be story after story about Jesus encountering real people and, and being the Savior. He, he is Lord and He's Savior. He saves us. He rescues us from our situations, from our sin. That's what's going on in the entire Gospel of Luke. And, and of course, most importantly at the end, how He actually uh, makes that happen, how He rescues us through His death on the cross, paying for our sins, His resurrection on the third day. But this chapter falls right in the middle and it's... Uh, Typical of Luke. It's teaching us what He's like. It's adjusting our expectations about what He's like as well. It's helping us to be corrected in our notions of God. And so Jesus, right here in this chapter actually, uh, has been doing just that in His ministry. He's been touching lives. He's been teaching truth. He's been relating to people. And He's been correcting notions about God. And one of the effects of that is that a lot of people that usually would have been on the outskirts, would have been on the outside, never interested in following God, find themselves now following God through the life of Christ. The unlikelies, those that are not religious, they're irreligious people of the day. And they are following Jesus. And He's eating with them. He's relating to them. He's bringing them in. They're drawn to Jesus. And as a result, the religious people, who there are some of those that are following Jesus, but they're kind of standing back looking and wondering, "This, this guy, we don't know about him. They are upset. They are upset with what's going on. And so Jesus brings these stories, these three stories or parables, uh, to everybody, to the whole audience, to adjust people's notions about God, about Himself. Um, It says right there in verse 1, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So He tells these stories, and, and there are three stories here. Uh, two are more typical parables, so a parable is a, a story uh, that's realistic but meant to convey some main uh, important truth or message. Uh, and the first two are more typical, often in a parable there's things that represent things, so it's uh, metaphorical or even allegorical to a degree, you have to be careful. Uh, and then the third story though, is, is it's a parable but it's more like a real life story. Uh, and it illustrates things. And so He brings these three stories. They all have certain things in common. These three stories are meant, by the way, to be read and understood together. That's the original context. They were taught boom, 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 right in a row. And it wasn't because Jesus felt like i just got to keep on telling this story till you get it right. No, there's, that, that's probably true. But, but part of it is that He's doing these three stories, giving these three stories, because in comparing and contrasting them, there are key lessons to get. And so, what do they have in common? Well, in all three stories, there are, uh, there's something that's lost. There's something that's out of place. There's something uh, uh, valued that's missing. It's lost. It's not in its proper place. So that's common. There's something lost in all three. And, um, and then in all three, there's something that's found. And in all three, there's celebration. So that's true. But there are some differences, and we'll get into that won't get into that right now, actually. We'll get into that as we go through this uh, three-part series. So, we're going to, today, mostly focus on the younger son. I'll be referencing a little bit the other stories as we go through the whole series. We'll, we'll kind of get saturated, I think, in the whole chapter. But for today, I want to focus on the younger son. And so, the title of today's message is Lost Things, in particular, uh, or Lost. In particular, I want to look at the younger son. Uh, I want to talk about the son who's rebellion and the results of his rebellion and his return and just dig into that so we can understand key truths about the younger son key truths about lost things in particular things that look like the younger son so in the story we we meet right away as jesus tells the story we meet the father with two sons in verse 11 Uh, and we learn that there's this younger son he wants his share of the estate from the father Um, And so the father divides up the estate. It's important, guys, to understand a little bit of uh, what it looked like in that day. Things were different than now. Uh, So when he asked for his share of the estate, he's not asking for his father to go to the local bank and make a withdrawal. They didn't, pretty much, they didn't have much in in banks back then. What he's asking is for his father to liquidate the farm. All right? So they they have an estate, it's farm, it's it's the land and it's livestock and probably heirlooms, certain pieces of valuable furniture and so forth. That's what he's asking. When he says, I want my share, I'm asking for my share of this estate, this, the farm. Um, and so he asked his father for that. He asked for his portion. And this would have caught the attention of the original audience just for how audacious and awful it was for the younger son to do that. Because your inheritance was not money to take out of the bank. I mean, it's enough if, if a, a child came you know, at, at 18 and said, I want the inheritance you're going to give me now. Go to the bank and get it. But this is more than that. He's asking the father to liquidate the estate. And by the way, this is an estate that would have been handed down for generation and generation and generation. And so you didn't liquidate it. You basically apportioned part of it. And the son got to live in the, in the family compound with his own house. And he had, he had say over his portion. But he stayed part of the family. He stayed part of the village. And, and that stayed in the family. So uh, it's hard to relate to that. You know, uh, we, don't, we don't even have a whole lot of multi-generational farms nowadays. But that was what they experienced. That was their culture. And it had gone on for generations. Uh, maybe like a hundred generations had been in the family. So the son is asking the father to liquidate that and give, it, give the portion, sell it, and give it to him. So this was shocking. And, and it's, I want us to get just how shocking this behavior is. We hear the story of the younger son, and I think in our culture, we tend to think, well, you know, he's just kind of going through a rebellious phase. you know, Just going to sow some wild oats. No big deal. He'll come back. you know, That's how we think of it. No, this is awful. What the younger son is doing is high, deep, awful rebellion that's how the original audience would have thought of it they would not have thought of it as as, you know just kind of some mischief or something to be excused and tolerated for a while this is shocking another aspect that's key to get is that this happens in an honor culture we're not in an honor culture for the most part an honor culture is a culture where basically the highest good that you can do uh, is not self-fulfillment it's not you know making the most of your life and your gifts Um, It's not even love, just the general value of love that we have. It's a good thing. The highest value in an honor culture is to show proper uh, respect and duty to others. So an honor culture basically uh, deferring to parents, deferring to the village and the village ways and so forth, that's the highest good. And the greatest evil is to bring shame on the family. To bring shame on the village by rejecting them and, and, and not doing what you'd be expected to do. There are a lot of cultures out there, by the way, today that are honor cultures. Our culture is not. We're kind of the other extreme. And so it can be hard sometimes as we look at this. Again, we think, oh, well, he's just sowing wild oats. No, he is doing basically the worst thing he could do in his culture. To shame his father and his family and his village. Um, and and that's, that's the context of the culture of that date. It's not our culture. It's very different. And so, this son's behavior is reprehensible. It's not cute. It's not mischievous. It's awful um, in what he's doing. Uh, So, I don't know. It's hard to to translate that today. You know, How do you come up with a modern-day example of that? I don't know. Maybe this. Maybe this will help us think about how awful it would feel if you were listening and if you were the father or the family in the actual story. Imagine a young son goes with his family, an 18-year-old son goes with his family for a trip to the Mideast. But while he's there, he's secretly been building up relations with ISIS. The family doesn't know about it. And so while, he's, oh, while they're all overseas with this, what they think is a wonderful family event, he actually betrays his family, sells them to ISIS as hostages, and then joins ISIS himself. That would be awful, right? That would be horrific. The shame on the family, the betrayal the family would feel, right? That's what's going on here. That's the level of this younger brother's behavior. It's interesting to note and get, as we go through this, I'm kind of jumping ahead, but it just came to mind. As we go through this story, um, if you're going to understand the father and what he's like, you have to really understand the younger brother and the older brother. And you have to understand that, that the father's, love is in the context of such horrific behavior. And, and, and it's never that behavior is made to look as awful as it is. Just a key theological point to kind of keep in the back of your mind. God's great and amazing love is never dismissing or minimizing the terribleness of evil and sin. All right? So that's part of why this story, when well, Jesus paints this story, and to His listeners, they are thinking, This is awful. What this younger son does is terrible. He has brought such shame on his father. He has done such evil to his family. That's the context. That's what everyone would have been thinking. And of course, we see it later on in the chapter. The older brother's reaction is in line with that. What's going on in the younger son, though, is all that context, life under his father, life in the village, life under his older brother, um, is something he wants nothing to do with. He's making a decision that that life, that life under his father, that life honoring and so forth, doesn't have what he wants. And in his mind, it's worth all the pain and shame that's going to come. And he's probably not, of course, aware of it all. But it's worth all that to find himself over here. To, to take the money and run and go somewhere else and to live life and to find meaning. And so what's going on in the son is, is he does not think rightly about his father. He's not thinking rightly about the nature of his father and the nature of living under his father. It's been been contorted somehow. And it no longer looks good. And the grass is greener over here. Guys, that's what goes on in rebellion all the time. Anytime we rebel against the right, that's what's going on. Because we look at the right and we see something wrong about it. We see something difficult about it. We see something unappealing about it. And we look at the wrong thing and we think there's something good here. There's something exciting here. There's something fulfilling here. And so we make a choice based on what we believe about the right and what we believe about the wrong. That's what's going on with this son. That's what's going on all the time when we do this. This younger brother thinks there's a better alternative than life with his father and life with his brother. The grass is greener on another hill. And so he rebels. The promise of happiness in the forbidden thing or or things is just too precious to pass up. And the reality for him of the pain in the given thing is just too difficult to endure in his mind. And so he rebels. That's what's going on. That's the nature of rebellion. That's the, the nature of the behavior. That would be understood in listening to the story. And that's insightful for us to understand. That's how rebellion works, at least for the younger brother. It's because this just looks too sweet to pass up and this is just too difficult to endure in our minds. And so we walk away and we walk into the wrong thing. I see this function in my life actually even day to day. um, And I'm going to talk about that as we go along. If you've run to Jesus for rescue, it doesn't mean that you're done struggling with the temptation to turn away from His good ways into something of the world and evil. So it operates in my life, but, but I also saw it operate in my life as a young man in a profound way. So as a young man, I grew up in a family that was a good family, it is a good family, uh, a good mom and dad. I, I know we, we don't all have that blessing. I had really good mom and dad, good siblings, good background in every way. But, but as I grew up, there was something about the allure of the world, and in particular for me, it came in the form of the approval of my friends at school. Um, and wanting their approval as they had their own subculture, like I'm sure many of us lived in, um, it just seemed too sweet to be a, a hero in their eyes, to be considered funny and daring and athletic and so forth and so on in their eyes. was too sweet. And what my parents offered was just, well, they were just ignorant of the culture and all these cool things. Or they're just, you know, they want me to do this and they want me to do that. And... You know, it just was, it was not preferable. It was not as desirable. And there were difficulties here, of course. To, to live more closely under my parents' authority meant certain things. And so I looked at that, and I looked at the sweetness here, and I said, all right, see you later. And I lived at home, but I didn't live at home. And I walked into rebellion, and I did all sorts of things in the name of the false promise of my friend's approval. Things that were really stupid. And evil and things I deeply regret to this day. But that's how it works. That's how rebellion works in our lives. Uh, It deceives us. It deceives us right from the beginning because the beginning of it is that thing is really sweet and that's a pain in the neck. And I don't want that anymore. I'm giving up trying. I'm going to go run and find myself here. It deceives us in the beginning. It deceives us throughout because it keeps us going. There's little things here that are, maybe are pleasurable, maybe are fun, that keep us motivated. We keep doing it until the money runs out. Until we hit a brick wall. Until we come to the end of things. Until the, the brokenness and pain is so significant that we're forced to face the reality of our choice. And sometimes it's too late. There's too much damage been done in our lives perhaps to feel like we can turn back. But this story is here to say no, there's always... The option to turn back. That's what's going on. That's the, the rebellion that this younger son is participating in and has captured him. And as a result, he's living over here and he's lost. He's lost. What does lost mean? He's not in the proper place. He's not where he should be. He's not where he's intended to be. He's not where it's good. He's where it's evil. He's lost. He's the coin that's missing from the woman. He's the sheep that's missing from the fold. His design in life is is to be here. To live with His family in love. But He's lost. He's in rebellion. He's he's living out rebellion. He's lost. He's dead, the Father says. This man is lost. Well, you know the story. He runs away from the family. He runs away from all that's good and all that he knows. And he has this wanderlust. He thinks if I can just get away, Go somewhere else, I'll find myself. I'll find life, and I'll have money, and it'll be great. And it, it, it says that he takes the money and he goes to a distant land. Uh, that's not like going on a vacation. You know, he doesn't go on a cruise in the Mediterranean and, and live, you know, in Italy. Uh, the, the distant land, I mean, it could have been Italy, but the, the use of that word is saying he goes away from the promised land to a distant land. He goes away from the promises of God and the people of God to a place that's far from God and far from His people. And he goes and he lives there. And in the mind of the Jews at that time, they would have been thinking, whoa, it's a self-imposed exile away from God. So he goes away from God. Far away to live in this place to somehow find himself there. So it, it's not, not only does he go outside the family, away from the father, but he runs away from the faith. And he lives among Gentiles in a distant country. And he, uh, we know it's Gentiles because it's a distant country, one and two, that there are pigs there. And pigs uh, were not allowed in Israel. So he's away from the faith. He's given up not only on his family, his father, but his faith. He's totally given up on that. He's living a contrary, to life, a contrary life to his faith. Again, it, there's more to the story in that than we might understand because we don't think, like when you talk about outside the country, we don't get that. So maybe to, to make an equivalent for nowadays, imagine uh, a son or daughter who grows up in the church, is doing fairly well and a good family, but for whatever reason, at some point they, they go to college and then they run off, end up running off with this strange cult. That travels around the country in campers and eats psychedelic mushrooms and you know, uh, begs on the street and you know, it just lives a wild lifestyle. Imagine that sort of situation. How it would feel, if you were the parent or if you knew this young person, and you knew that they didn't they didn't just go away, but they went off into this weird, weird cult and they were totally caught up in that lifestyle. That's that's what's going on. That's part of the, the meaning of this story as Jesus tells it. That this. This son has gone off away from the faith as well. He's living in a distant land. He's living among Gentiles. So he's rejected the family's faith and the living God. Um, And it says that he lives uh, in this distant country uh, in reckless living. That word wasteful could also be used. Actually, that's where the word prodigal uh, comes from. Prodigal means uh, wasteful or generous. So the, the negative side of prodigal is is you know, you're, you're spending all the money. You're wasting it. The positive side of prodigal, which the father could be called, is, is someone who's very generous. Um, but he's living a prodigal lifestyle, a reckless life. He's wasting the money. Uh, and we don't know exactly what he's doing. We don't know. It doesn't say the particulars, but, but think like nonstop parties, maybe even criminal behavior, maybe illicit sex going on. Certainly the older brother makes that accusation that he squandered it on prostitutes. And he's spending all his money. Again, let's just pause and think about that. He's spending all his money. He would have uh, received about a third of the estate. And in the storyline, right, they're a fairly wealthy family. They have an estate. They have hired servants. Later on, we see the the father has the best robe, so they have fancy clothes. Back in those days, by the way, uh, you didn't have 30 sets of clothes. Uh, I have to go through my closet every year and uh, my wife's helped me do this because I'm a keeper. I have to go through, and if I haven't worn it in the past year, uh, I have to consider giving it away. Um, so we have closets full, right? Some of us have whole little mini rooms full of clothes, right? You don't have to put your hand up, but some of us have walk-in closets, right? You, just have, you could wear something different all the time. Matter of fact, if you wear the same thing two days in a row in our culture, it's kind of like, oh, why are you doing that? It's funny, right? Um, actually, sometimes people will point out to me that you, you wore the same thing that you wore last week. I mean, not totally, but the same pants or whatever. I'm not very much of a fashion guy. Um, but in our culture, it's funny. Well, in that culture, you had one set of clothes usually, and you wore it every day. If you were wealthy, maybe you had two. If you were really wealthy, you had some fancy clothes, like a rope. Uh, and so this family has an estate. They have hired, hired skilled workers. He has a fancy rope. They have a fattened calf. That's like they're doing really well. Um, a fattened calf was a special calf that was just prepared for a feast. And you would just grain feed it and it was a really nice calf to eat. Um, and, and so, I mean, that, that's a really wealthy family. And so he gets a third of the estate. So this, is, this guy had probably million or millions of dollars. He squanders. He wastes it all in this foreign country. All that money is wasted in reckless living. He, he in his rebellion uh, just wastes it all. He's foolish. And he's pursued this twisted fantasy, this mirage that's, that's vanishing before him. And in the story, we, we understand all that. So understand how this would have impacted the first listeners. Understand what Jesus is getting at with this guy. This, is, this guy is a rebel. He's a foolish young man. He's shamed his father. He's shamed his family. He's done evil. He's wasted generations of of earnings on his foolish pursuit of a dream that's just that. It's it's a mirage. That's the background. And yet, uh, what happens in the story, things change, right? He wastes everything. He runs out of money. And he finds all those friends who he had who like to come to his parties are no longer his friends. It says that there's no one to help him. Absolutely no one. The word actually in the original language means like absolutely nobody. He's totally alone. He has to hire himself out to a, a farmer who really probably doesn't care about him a bit because, and probably wants him to quit, so he makes this Jewish young man feed the pigs. And he doesn't make enough money to feed himself. And so he's feeding the pigs. It's the, the lowest he could go. Uh, the lowest he could go as a, as a Jewish person feeding pigs in a foreign country. And he's uh, even lower than that. He's underfed. And so as he feeds the pig, pigs this garbage food, he's longing to eat it himself. I'm so starved. I could eat that myself. And he's at that low point. He's at the very bottom. The very bottom for anybody who would have grown up in his circumstances at the time. And that's what's being communicated by Jesus. He's at the very bottom. And at the very bottom, he, he realizes, you know what? What am I doing? Back home, it wasn't that bad. (laughs) Now that I think of it, it wasn't that bad over there before. And and I can't go back as a son because I've shamed my father and shamed my family and and taken the inheritance and squandered it. But maybe I could go back and be one of the hired helpers. Because I I work the farm. I know those things. and, And maybe my dad will will take me back. Maybe the, I know my dad. He's a nice guy. Maybe he'll, though I've shamed him, I can't be his son, maybe he'll take me back as someone who just works. And those guys made better money than I'll ever make here in this circumstance. And so he comes up with her, her speech that he's going to use too. He's going to say, Father, I've sinned against Heaven and against You. I'm no longer worthy to be called Your Son. Make me one of Your hired servants. He, he's got this speech that he's prepared. That somehow he thinks, you know, hopefully this will get me back to, to get some food in my stomach. It's interesting, actually, his, re- his rehearsed speech uh, parallels Pharaoh's speech in Exodus 10, if you could put that up. In Exodus 10, Pharaoh is leading Egypt, and Moses is representing God and his people, and he's confronting Pharaoh because they've oppressed and murdered God's people, and they're in slavery. And so they bring uh, these plagues against Egypt, and they're pretty severe. And basically the, each plague is designed that Pharaoh would give them permission to leave, permission to go out and worship and, and eventually leave. And after these plagues they get pretty serious, Pharaoh says in Exodus 10, he called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore, forgive my sin, please only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he's asking for the plagues to stop and yeah, I'm going to give permission. And he says, I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Uh, and that's almost the exact phrase and you might say, well, it says the Lord your God and it says heaven in Luke 15. Well, by the time of Jesus' day, they, they would not say God's name. Um, it was considered too holy to actually say His name. So you'd use the word heaven to represent the Lord your God. So it's the same, the same phrase that He's using here uh, in His prepared speech for His Father. And it sounds just like Pharaoh's speech and I don't think that's an accident. Remember, Jesus is telling this story, right? And Jesus, I think, is using this speech to show that, you know what? His repentance was not necessarily sincere. And if you read through the story, you can tell that, right? Because He doesn't say, what a mess up. I can't believe I did that to my dad. I'm so sorry. I'm willing to go back and just be a slave because I love my dad and I just want to get back to be with my dad. He doesn't say that. What's his motivation? He's hungry. (laughs) He's hungry. And so his repentance, his return is self-serving. He just wants food. He wants to be able to eat and get to a lifestyle that, that will work better than where he is. And so, that's interesting and important in this story to get even His return now is really self-serving. It is a return. It is a type of repentance. But it's not real repentance. He's not going back for the love of the Father. He's going back for the love of Himself. And by the way, guys, that's how it usually works in our lives when we come to Christ when we first come, at least initially, it's self-serving. Because we've made a mess of our lives and we want the mess to stop. We want the pain to stop. We want the guilt to stop. And God uses that. That's legitimate. That pain that wakes us up and makes us realize, what am I doing? This is self-inflicted pain. And maybe there's a degree of I've caused pain to others as well that's there. But it's ultimately not because we love God. It's because we love ourselves. And God uses that. And it, in time, at some point, it changes. The nature of it changes. And that's a good thing. So this young man goes back and he encounters the Father. And I think it's at that moment, if you couldn't tell in how I read the passage, that his rehearsed speech changes into genuine repentance. It's in the face of the amazing love of the Father. Because the Father, and we're going to talk about this next week, the Father does things that were totally unexpected. He was expecting in that culture to go back and you would have been shamed. You would have been punished. The whole village would have shamed you. The whole family would have shamed you. And you would have been basically punished. And He would have said, okay, you're a hired servant. That's, that's the, what was expected in that culture. The Father totally changes everything. Does something so unexpected. And how He relates to the Son and His love for the Son, His humility, and how He acts contrary to what was expected by the culture and His mercy. It just unnerves and undoes the Son. And so, in the response, the Son doesn't give His prepared speech. At least not all of it. He stops short of the hired servant. And He simply says, I have sinned against Heaven and against You. I'm no longer worthy to be called Your Son. And he stops there. And I believe it's a different speech. And it's made different by Jesus on purpose. That that stands out in the story on purpose so we would understand something happened as this son who was, yeah, kind of repenting, at least for his own benefit, encountered the love of the Father. He was transformed in his outlook. And the Father embraces him with such a crazy, amazing love and grace. And again, we'll dig into the story. I want to talk a little bit about that a little bit more, but, but I, before we move on to that, I just want to, to pause and consider some lessons from the younger son that I think are important lessons. They come in the form of questions. Do you understand the nature of your rebellion against God? Do you understand the nature of rebellion against, and your rebellion against God? Your rebellion against God is not something that is just because you're human merely. Your rebellion against God is not because the devil made you do it. It's not something that just happens. Your rebellion against God is rooted in what you believe about God. It's rooted in what you believe about God and what you believe about the world. When I say the world, I mean the world. Humanity apart from God. Not, not the, the globe and not everything about culture. But humanity apart from God. So your rebellion, my rebellion against God is rooted in what we believe about God what we believe about the world. That's what's going on. There's a perspective that's driving our actions. There's something wrong or deficient in what we've heard and experienced about God. And there's something that seems like a better alternative in rebellion. And it could be a million different things that tempt us. And so our rebellion is always an active choice based on what we believe to be true about God and the world. That's what's That's the background of this story. Jesus is trying to get at this. You guys don't understand the Father. You younger brother types, you don't understand the Father, so you've run away. You think that irreligion is the answer. You think to get away from rules and to do what you want and be free to choose what what is most satisfying and fulfilling. That's the answer. You don't get God. And the older brother, we're going to find out, he doesn't get God either. He thinks that it's religion. It's following the rules. It's toeing the line that that's how you make things work and that's how you relate to the Father and He misses it. And so what we believe about God is, is at the heart of our choices, our rebellion. Whether our rebellion is to be irreligious or legalistic in our religion. And the problem is Our belief, our biggest problem is that belief, that false belief. It determines everything. It's not about your circumstances. Your your problem is not your circumstances. Though that may be part of it, it's not the core of it. Your problem isn't something that can be solved by going somewhere else. You, You won't find yourself in a distant land somehow. Things will not change because you will be there. And your belief systems will still be active. And you will still believe certain things about God and certain things about the world. So, the problem is an internal one, not an external one. It's what you think. What you believe. What's in you. You are the biggest problem in your life. Because you misunderstand God. And you misunderstand His ways, And you misunderstand the world. And in the story, we know that there's results. They always come with rebellion. You are going to face pain and a life that will eventually unravel. Whether it's through circumstances like we see in the story. Whether it's eventually getting old and having to stand before God and answer for your choices. Your life in rebellion will face circumstances. And by the way, guys, that's not only for the one that is rebelling on a large scale, completely walking away, but even our little rebellions all work the same way. We're always believing the wrong thing, going over here, pursuing something, and then facing bad consequences as a result. So if if you are a believer in Jesus, that still functions because we still are tempted. This is what's going on in rebellion. And it's really helpful to look at the story and think through these things that we would understand. And there's rescue for us. The rescue, of course, is in the transforming love of the Father. The Father loves this Son. And He's extravagant in His love and what He does. He, he welcomes the son. He, in his gut, he's full of compassion. Um, and, and the word in the original language for, for compassion is related to your guts. So when he feels compassion, it's like he, he was just had this gut feeling of, of compassion and love for his son. And he runs to him and he welcomes him and he forgives him and he brings him back into the family to full status as a son. Completely unexpected. And so all that He does is related to that. Again, we'll get into that more later. And this ultimately points to the ultimate Father, who's God the Father Himself. And this is what the Father is like. Two younger sons. This is how the Father responds to younger sons. He's there wanting them to come back. Celebrating when they do. Embracing them. Matter of fact, the real story behind this story in Luke 15. There's an elder brother who does what he's supposed to do in the real story. His name is Jesus. And when the younger brother runs off in the real story, the elder brother on behalf of the father, in love for the father, in love for the younger brother, pursues him and runs after him and doesn't let him stay there. That that elder brother is Jesus. And on behalf of the Father, He came to live life in our stead. To live the righteous life that God justly requires. Perfect life. And then He died the death that God justly requires for rebels like me and like you. He went to the cross to, to pay for the squandering of our lives. For our reckless living. For our choices. He bore the penalty. He took the pain. He took the ultimate pain for those things Himself on the cross. Died on the cross. We're told for God, the Father really, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. This elder brother went on a rescue mission to rescue us on behalf of the Father. Died on the cross. Rose again victorious over sin and death on the third day. So through simple faith, simple turning, even though our turning may not be perfect, turning to Jesus and receiving that forgiveness, we are forgiven, we are reconciled, we are welcomed as sons and daughters into the family, into the Father's arms. See, this is not just a story. This is a picture of reality in Jesus. As the band comes up, in light of these truths, let me invite you to do one of three things. First, if you've never responded to His love in a way that is fitting for His love, in a way that that is, yes, I receive it, and now I want to be with you. If you've never done that, do so today. Today. Give up on your plans for a happy life. Stop running in your own strength, in your own ideas. Give up on your rebellion and see God for who He really is. He loves you. And He's good. And His ways are good. Yes, they can be hard at times, but they're good. And you'll never regret in the long run, you'll never regret staying close to Him. So put your faith in Christ. Receive His love. And turn. And you can simply pray like this, Father, I'm sorry. I've sinned against You. Thank You for Jesus' death in my place. I receive Your forgiveness and Your love and I want to be with You now. You can just pray like that. Respond simply like that. Do that today because this story is given for you. If you already have put your faith and you belong to the Father, They thank You one more time. Thank You for Your love. And ask Him to strengthen you in knowing who He is, that you might be more and more like Jesus and not follow the rebellion of the world. And, third thing to possibly do, if you struggle with temptations toward rebellion, and I think that means all of us, Get around others who understand what's going on. Who understand that it's how we understand the Father and living in light of the truth, in light of what the Bible says. Get into a church that teaches truth. This church or another good church. So that you might understand better what the Father's like so that your rebellion would be put away. Not because you just simply pick yourself up by the bootstraps and say, I've got to change, but because you understand, I've been wrong about the Father. And I've been wrong about this stuff. We need each other to do that. We need each other to journey together in that, and that's what the church is about. So we can do it, and we can tell others as well. Three different ways to respond. Let me pray uh, before we transition to communion and just encourage you to consider what God would say to you through His Word. Lord, thank you for Luke chapter 15 and all the truth here. Lord, we talked about a lot. I talked about a lot. I pray you just help each one of us to hear you and be changed in how we understand you how we understand our rebellion, that we might live in Your love, we pray.